it's very fast paced and you have to wear a lot of hats all the time. Not only the design stuff, but I have to know a lot about materials. So I have to know electrical, we have to know plumbing, hydraulics, and that was challenging in the beginning. But I think it's made me a better designer to kind of work at this fast pace and kind of have my hand in all the pieces because I have a much greater appreciation for the construction process. I know much more what goes into a, a pretty photograph when I see the final version. You know, I'm like having post-traumatic stress about like that tiny detail that I took two months doing and then it came out beautifully or it's really rewarding to kind of have all those hats and, and be able to create something beautiful. Welcome back to the Pool Chasers Podcast. I'm your host, Greg Viafania, joined by my co-host, Justin, the bearded plumber, Bowie. <laughs> yes, thank you. And today we've got a very special guest. We've got Brittany Duncan of Design Ecology. How you doing, Brittany? Hi, great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, super excited to have you on the show. You were a recommendation given by, uh, I think, your boss, Ben Lasseter. I'm sure nobody's ever said that before, <laughs> like your boss. I can't see him as like, being that type of boss, but you know what I mean. No, I know. I'm, I'm very flattered. So <laughs> thanks, Ben. <laughs> <laughs> so he was telling us that you're super cool. You're very gifted at what you do, do as a designer. Um, and we can tell because just given the uh, backdrop that you have for us, can you tell us a little bit about what you got going on back there? Because it's kind of a cool story. <laughs> okay. So the cow skull on the wall um is from my uncle's ranch. He's a rancher out in Arizona. And I was looking for one for a while and they cost like $300 and I wasn't going to do that. And he said, well, Brittany, just come down to my place. I've got a ton of them. And I was thinking, oh, perfect. So I went down there and there was a pile of them, but it had all of the the bits of skin and dead stuff on it still. So I had to put it in the truck and take it back and put it in an acid wash and soak it and then scrub it all off. But um, yeah, it's a, it, that's a family cow. So straight from my uncle's ranch. <laughs> it's like a scene straight out of Yellowstone. You ever watch that? I stopped watching it because it was a little too close to home. Uh. <laughs> started to get, really? Yeah, I started to get mad at the characters. <laughs> when like the, uh, what was it like the, the two women that started bunking in the, whatever that house is, and they have the idea of like riding the buffaloes and they actually do it. I was like, there's no way that's real, but that's some hardcore shit. I didn't get that far, but I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> I'm an enthusiast. Well, anyway, that's a super cool story. Me and Justin were just saying that we got to figure out how we get our hands on one and that might be yeah. it. Yeah, I'll take you down if you're willing to, you know, roll up the sleeves and put in some work. Put on my Jeffrey Dahmer shirt that day and bring my tub of acid. You know. That's Justin. I will be filming that day. <laughs> We're pool people. We have tubs of acid laying around. There you go. There you go. Boom. So let's jump right into this. Why don't you uh, tell the listeners a little bit about, you know, your background and how you got to where you are with design ecology? Yeah. Um, so my name is Brittany. Um, I, I grew up in the West, uh, kind of right outside of Las Vegas, um, where the Hoover Dam is. And um, 
I guess I found landscape architecture because I I heard that the National Park Service um, employed the greatest number of landscape architects, which is not really true anymore. But um, I would spend all my summers at Lake Mead uh, kind of uh, walking around there in my uniform and holding coyote pelts and like desert tortoise shells and, and talking to all of the people who were getting drunk at the lake and had wanted nothing to do with me, um, but talking to them about the animals and the geology. So I loved that job. That was a summer job. Um, and I ended up kind of going to school for journalism and making my way back to um, a master's degree in landscape architecture from CU Denver um, many, many years later. Um, because I always remembered how happy I was kind of at that time with the park service. So, um, in between that, um, I have a, I have a journalism degree. That was the first degree that I kind of, uh, I don't use too much anymore. Um, but in between that, I, I travel a lot and I've lived in a bunch of different countries. So, uh, China, um, England and Germany being three of them, I spent the most time in. So I think kind of my design background is heavily influenced by, you know, like landscapes of the West, telling stories um, and my travels. Um, and I found design ecology through um, one of my coworkers. He grew up with my husband and he knew that I was a landscape architect and they were looking. So they had me out and I kind of fell in love with the firm and the projects and, and, and here I am. That's awesome. Why don't you tell the listeners what it is that you do exactly with design ecology? Great question. Um, so design ecology, we're a design build firm based in Austin, Texas. And um, I would say we're most well known for our pools, um, which is why we're talking today. Um, so people often hire us for the pools. And then we also do everything that's outside or not air conditioned space. So that's often, you know, like a pool cabana, shade structures, hardscape, uh, fire features, and the plants around them as well. So um, my role at Design Ecology, I'm an associate landscape architect there. And I, I do everything from kind of quick conceptual drawings, meetings with clients, to um, budgeting the projects and then figuring out um, if we sell them. Um, I'm involved in creating the shop drawings and construction documents in order to build uh, what we've designed and rendered for them. And then I also work with our subcontractors and I'm out in the field uh, often um, placing plants, uh, project managing, um, some of the less technical stuff, Ben and Scott handle more of the of the pool side of that, but I spec all the equipment and the plumbing and the flows and everything as part of my role as well. Hey, all right. Flows. Like so that. really everything, every single piece of it, if it's my project, I touch it all. And that's really fulfilling when it comes out, <laughs> you know. I was about to say, what the hell is everyone else doing? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, Ben. No, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so let's jump into uh, some design questions because, you know, that's what you do with design ecology. So, you know, what's a landscape architect and how is it different than other landscape design roles? I think 
people most commonly associate landscape architects more with like plant doctors or um, or gardeners. I know um, all of my friends, they, they text me when their ficus starts turning brown or, <laughs> or something like that. And I'm like, I don't, I'm not the right person. Um, although, you know, plants are a huge part of it. I, I think that landscape architects are kind of trained to think of space as a whole and more about the architecture, the existing site conditions um, and kind of circulation and flows. So um, more spatial designers than plant designers. Although that is a fun part of it that we get to also, um, that we get to also do. Awesome. So what are some things you take into consideration when you're designing a project? I think the most important thing is the site context. Um, in Austin, also the soils are really important, especially if we're going to be doing a pool. Um, half of Austin is, is very rocky and that's kind of an ideal condition for us um, because the rock doesn't move. Um, it might be harder to excavate down into, but um, once we do excavate, nothing's moving. Um, and then the other half of Austin are clay soils and they move a lot. And so typically that means steel reinforcement piers and that can get really expensive very fast. So um, right away, site context, uh, soil content, and then of, of course the existing architecture is probably the where we go from there. Um, you know, how are people going to move from the inside to the outside and how can we make that as seamless as possible, um, getting all the circulation and flows right between the different elements um, is is the major part of it after that. What does that look like? You know, when you talk about flows, like I've always heard, I don't know if this is a real thing, but I've always heard like a 50-foot rule. Like if anything exists 50 feet outside of your living space, you don't utilize it or something like that. Is that true? You ever heard that? I've never heard that, but I definitely kind of abide by that rule if I'm doing an outdoor kitchen. Mm -hmm. Most people don't want to walk a hundred yards with their steak and yeah. get to their outdoor kitchen and then realize they forgot the salt. Um, so there are kind of some loose guidelines I have for myself um, or I try to uh, consider, um, but really some clients are happy to kind of go on a wandering journey to get to a destination that that could be right for them and their property. So it's really um, on a project by project basis, I think. We had someone else on who has some design background. And one of the things they said that I thought was cool is they, they called it like bubble drawing where they would start to put elements on the plan. And then I think that was kind of the same thing they were trying to develop, like the relationship of items to each other and the flow. Is that is that kind of how it goes? Like, do you just start like start blank slate and start placing stuff or like how did, what does that look like? Yeah, the bubble diagram is what I remember from school a lot. Um, kind of getting the program and the elements together and um, on really large scale projects that can be hugely beneficial. Um, my process is a little different. It might be because of my journalism background, but I write a lot. Mm. I kind of have lists of elements um, and kind of ideas of maybe even what materials I, I might be considering using um, kind of like all together on a sheet or just in my head filed away. But I, 
I don't bubble diagram so much as I write and then I'm actually getting out the the Sharpie and the trace paper and kind of starting to lay out the house, um, lay out the slopes and the topography and kind of start to see, you know, where do I have room to do certain things um, and maybe like squares instead of bubbles kind of loosely on top of that until I get it into a place where I think it works well. And there's usually not a right or wrong answer. I mean, I might immediately like a concept right away and think that's the best one, but I try to I try to do three to four completely different uh, kind of high-level spatial concepts to show the client from the get-go because what I think works might not work for their family and how they utilize the space. So um, it's really personal in that way. Do you ever do a design like for a site that you can't get access to and like where you can't get in the living space and like understand the relationship between the interior and exterior space? Because you guys, you design, you do specific, or I'm sorry, you do design only for clients too, right? Where you don't build it? Correct. Yes. So are you ever in that um, circumstance where you can't be there on site to kind of link it all together or is that a requirement? I mean, I would prefer to be on site to see everything myself, but certainly we have clients who um, are just um, design clients um, who might even be in different states. But, you know, it's a lot of zooming back and forth, photographing the site um, and and having a dialogue with them about, you know, the existing architecture and kind of what their vibe is. Um, but oftentimes we're uh, designing for houses that aren't even built yet. All right. Um, so there's kind of a little bit of back and forth, like we might have a massing for a building and we kind of loosely know where entry doors might be. Um, but uh, that that often happens and then you're kind of, you kind of have a blank slate, which it feels a little dangerous, you know, <laughs> like to, to kind of proceed without knowing what's gonna be there because um, you want it to all work together smoothly and, and that might get overlooked if you don't have the whole picture right from the beginning. Yeah, because uh, if you're starting with a fresh slate, you probably are working with the uh, the home builder GC mm -hmm. on what the house is going to look like, right? Yeah, most of the time. Um, I know there's been examples where, you know, we've had clients who plan to completely redo the house, but they have young children and they immediately want like a new pool um, before they redo the entire house. So they they want to demo the backyard or demo the existing pool and kind of start fresh um, knowing that nothing else is going to be there. And that that can be a little bit daunting, you know, because I mean, if the architect, if they hire a great architect afterwards, will be able to, to work with that no problem. Um, and we'll certainly think about, you know, things that we want to be there after. But yeah, kind of designing for something floating in space isn't very much fun because you don't have any context and the context I think is what roots and grounds things um, and makes the place so special. So you guys work with a lot of high-end clients, right? You're in Austin, you're in all the special places Ben took us to. Um, what, yeah. Where did we go? Westlake Hills. There you go. Probably where Westlake you Hills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you're working with high-end clients and I assume architects. So what's it like working with your type of clientele and they need a lot of help or do they know what they want or what's that like? I think... Every client is different. Um, that's probably going to be my answer for everything. It's project specific. Um, 
every single one of them is different but um at least for my part of the the business um um i'm mostly working directly with the homeowners themselves um sometimes with gcs and, and architects but so some clients are very hands-off and they you know they hired design ecology for the vision and the craftsmanship and the attention to detail that we provide and they kind of just want to they want to see what we come up with they don't want to have a lot of input um, and other clients are you know texting at all hours of the day about each specific plant you know um, that you want to put in their yard so it really runs the gamut um, per project what was something that maybe took a minute to wrap your head around when you got into this role because I mean you're getting hired as a designer and you're talking about soils tests like I would be thinking like hey I thought we were gonna be picking out tiles and you know all this other you know cool stuff but I'm looking at dirt like what's going on <laughs> yeah um I think I I wasn't surprised but it definitely was a learning curve um especially in design build less so um my previous job to this I was a landscape architect at a firm where we did like really large scale um, projects, public works projects, or um, things like campuses or botanic gardens. So it was really kind of this mega scale. And that was really like bubbles and flows and, and, and drawing with big sweeping motions. Um, and this job in design builds, you know, instead of giving, getting a project that's gonna be built once every 10 years, um, we know we have 10 projects that are being built a year. So it's very fast paced and you have to wear a lot of hats all the time. Not only the design stuff, but I have to know a lot about materials. So I have to know electrical. We have to know plumbing, hydraulics. And that was challenging in the beginning. But I think it's made me a better designer to kind of work at this fast pace and kind of have my hand in all the pieces because I have a much greater appreciation for the construction process. I know much more what goes into a, a pretty photograph when I see the final version. You know, I'm like having post-traumatic stress about like that tiny detail that I took two months doing and then it came out beautifully or it's really rewarding to kind of have all those hats and, and be able to create something beautiful. That's really good. How do you get to the point where you're doing good work? fast you know because i know that that takes time but you know there's got to be something to that i'm i'm pretty self-motivated and um i'm kind of a workaholic like if if i don't figure out a detail and i know i need to get it done i'll be in the office on a friday night um kind of working on it on my own time but i think the best advice i was ever given um and i don't think this was even uh, relating to landscape architecture was something totally different, but uh, someone just told me, you know, make mistakes faster and that's how you grow and that's how you learn. So I think nothing, if you're too caught up in being perfect all the time or getting it right on the first try, you'll just never get there. Um, and so it's a constant process of evolution um, in the practice um, and in my personal life. So I just try to kind of go and then um, talk to people who know more than me after and make sure that it's all getting done to the best quality that we can provide. How organized are you with that kind of stuff? Like, do you give yourself a deadline on, 
you know, say you got to map out a concept for a project. I mean, are you pretty regimented like that? I think I'd like to say yes, <laughs> but um, we're working on so many things at the same time that, um, you know, sometimes we're in the field, sometimes I'm in a CD set, there's five CD sets I'm doing. So it's, I'm very organized. I know where all the pieces are, but um, if I have to make myself a hard deadline, I'll do it. But things often kind of get pushed, hopefully not weeks away, but um, I try to be a little bit flexible and allow for kind of the present task to happen. And um, I just kind of work things in when I can. So Ben was saying when he was on the show that usually um, you guys wait like a year before taking a photo or taking photos of the uh, end project. Can you explain why that is? Yeah, that is mostly because of the landscape. So um, we plant things depending on the client. Clients sometimes want everything to be big and beautiful right from the onset. And we can certainly make that happen or try to make that happen. Um, but more often than not, we're, we're getting plants kind of small. The plants just take time to grow. So um, oftentimes we're waiting about a year to get our projects photographed because um, we also do the landscape. So it's something to have a beautiful pool and hardscape. But if you have these little small plants in the background, um, it, it definitely is not the full picture that you envision from the onset. So we try to wait at least a year, sometimes two in order for the landscape to kind of grow in and be beautiful. And then you kind of get that beautiful mu magazine quality photograph. Um, unless your client buys goats and they eat your landscape every time you plant it. And then in which case you never take pictures. So <laughs> the thing? <laughs> that, yeah. What, one of my biggest projects, um, we'll photograph it eventually. Um, but they bought these adorable little goats and they just, eat everything constantly so that that's going to be like a five-year process before we can um photograph that one how upsetting would that be brand new landscape <laughs> uh, might see one of those gold schools in my <laughs> office so do you have a type of style that you stick to um you know obviously like on brand with uh with design ecology or does it vary or can you say about that um, I, I don't think at this point I have tried to stick to a particular style. Design ecology, where we definitely have these high-end projects and water features where we're doing a lot of, uh, like, knife-edge pools um, and, and fun overflow features. But for my projects, uh, I have I have a lot of range on the ones I'm working on right now, and part of that is just you know, every client is different. Um, they have different personalities. Their homes are architecturally different styles. And I think beauty is diverse. And I'm trying not to pigeonhole myself yet um, or design something that doesn't belong, right? I think the goal, at least for me, is to design something that is very functional, but and aesthetically beautiful, but looks like it could have always been there or, um, you know, works 
and is in harmony with the existing conditions of the site and the house. Yeah, do you think that that limits companies, you know, especially you're in such a tight niche with pools, you know, if you kind of just have like sort of one style and, you know, color scheme and texture that you stick to, um, do you think that that, you know, can hurt a company? I don't know if it, I don't know if it would hurt a company, um, I guess that would de depend on the size and the scope of the services that they provide. But by the time a client comes to design ecology and, and they want to hire us, they're usually looking for something pretty custom and special. So um, I would feel like it would be a disservice to kind of go straight to a strict palette of, of materials that I'm comfortable using. And I think a lot of the fun and the, the personality of a project comes alive with the finishes and the, the final materials. So I try to kind of branch out and I try to push myself to, to do something new on every project if it's merited for that project. This episode is brought to you by Lion Financial. Offer your customers the industry's best financing options and sell more pools. Lion Financial's low rates and long terms give your clients more buying power by making a pool affordable one low monthly payment at a time. They offer unsecured loans with low fixed rates, terms up to 30 years, single loan amounts up to $200,000, options for credit scores of 640 plus, and no 6% consulting fees like other finance sources charge your customers. Lion Financial pays builders directly, ensuring payment on time and in full. Call 877 754-5966 or visit lionfinancial.net today. All right, now back to the episode. What's a, a good source of inspiration for, for you? Online, anywhere. Uh, I, I love books. Mm -hmm. So you got a bunch there and a bunch on the ground over there as well. Um, but I'm going to make this difficult for us. Which which books? <laughs> I'm not trying to spill the secrets. What's what's a what's a good one? I I'm obsessed with coffee table books, so I'm all my Amazon points go to uh, fancy coffee table books that I can flip through whenever I'm home and I'm look, looking for inspiration. So um, right now I'm reading it's just a, a giant book of James Terrell's ex exhibitions. Who's like a, a fascinating lighting designer. He's not. A landscape architect, but his um, his projects are gorgeous and I think kind of very space-like. And so if I'm doing like a, a very modern project, I'll kind of go in a direction like that or I'll watch some sci-fi movies or I'll listen to some Radiohead or something weird. I'm, I'm a very much like a, a mood person. So uh, when I start a project, I'm music, movies, writing. I'm trying to create kind of that whole world in my head for how I envision the project going and that'll kind of guide me um, as I go throughout the process. Is that what the studio's like? I want to come visit. I just walk in there and there's Radiohead playing. Stanley Kubrick movie going and Radiohead. And <laughs> just That's what's going on in my shit. headphones. I don't know what everybody else is doing. <laughs> so just the Beatles playing behind your headphones. That's yeah. what everyone else is listening to. I, I mean, that's, you know, that's good vibes. That's pool vibes. <laughs> I have a question. This is almost for myself, really, because I'm trying to gain or gather inspiration from my own backyard. 
And uh, how do you sure. keep track of it all? Like, I find that I'll see stuff and then I don't have like, you know, like a catalog, for example, to put it all in. So I, like, how do you remember everything you see? Or do you, are you finding yourself like earmarking pages? Do you, like, how do you do it? Greg, it's Pinterest. I know already Greg, it's Pinterest, but. I know. I was like, it, have you heard of Pinterest? It can't be Pinterest. <laughs> I refuse She's gonna to say get it. In a, it's in a book on the ground. <laughs> Next question. Now, how do you remember? Do you, is that literally like, you know, just something that you earmark pages or what? Yeah, I do a lot of earmarking pages. I'm addicted to post-it notes. I probably go through an entire pack a week. Um, I'm constantly like cutting the post-it notes and sticking them in magazines or books. Um, and I know, and I've gotten better at this because I know I'll I'll put that post-it and then I'll never look at it again. So I've gotten pretty good at like taking a photo on my phone of that and putting it in a file somewhere. Um, my personal computer, I have, you know, like fire features, uh, orthogonal pools, or like I just have oh. a giant list of places where I can kind of go um, and kind of look through that for specific elements. Or if it's per project, I, I have an inspiration folder and I, I make sure I get it all in there so I can refer back to it and refer clients back to it as well. Because, you know, I'm very visual and I can see things kind of as they're going to be built, I will often postmark things and then I'll also take a photograph of it with my phone and make sure I get that into a folder, um, whether it's per project that I can refer to it on the project and, and also the clients can refer to it as well. Or I have a personal kind of library of a bunch of different elements kind of in an outdoor space where I kind of put things so if I'm really wanting to do a, a fire feature, I can look through my fire feature folder and um, there's a lot of different unique things in there that I've kind of marked throughout the years and and see if if I see something in there that's kind of getting close to an aesthetic that I envision for, for the project. Cool. It's got to be difficult. You're talking about how you really like doing the research and sourcing materials and things like that. When I'm flipping through the internet, Pinterest, or a magazine or a book, you see certain materials that are really rad that haven't been used before, but it's really difficult to find like where it was actually made. Right. That is kind of the eternal struggle. Um, clients will see something posted on Italian architectural digest, you know, and, and they're like, I want this specific thing. And you can go on a, on a wild goose chase trying to find or track down what the element is. Um, or so often what happens with us, um, I'll find the thing, but it won't work in our climate or I can't submerse it in water, uh, which doesn't work a lot of times when we're thinking about materials for pools. So it's uh, it can be very difficult to find materials that work um, and are regional specific and 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 work in Austin's kind of crazy weather we've been having freeze thaw cycles and all that. So um, material sourcing is a huge time-consuming portion of the job, but I also find that it's the most rewarding. Um, you know, once you kind of you, you find a material you've been looking for for six months or a year and you finally get it in and it works beautifully. And that's just so satisfying because you haven't seen it before or we've never had it before. Um, and then 
you have this whole new kind of palette to work with because that tile company can can work with you and do custom things. And so material sourcing uh, is is great. It's a lot of fun. I think it's one of my favorite parts of the job. Then goes the stress of nobody screw this material up because we got the last thousand feet that they had on Alibaba that we had to get from China. <laughs> oh my <Seriously>. gosh. <laughs> we have we have one project that this finally just got installed. It's not photographed yet, but the client really wanted a terracotta brick paver. They already had them, um, but they were too small. They wanted larger format ones. And this is an example of I went down the rabbit hole, like trying to find a terracotta paver that was, you know, artisanal, like handcrafted looking, not concrete, but actual terracotta. And something that was larger than like a 12 by 12 or an 8 by 14 piece. And I just couldn't find one anywhere. And I made a lot of calls and I spoke with a lot of people and they basically told me, look, this is an ancient method they've been using for like hundreds, maybe a thousand years in certain parts of the world. Like they only make them and these are the sizes that they make. These are like small villages where they're producing these. And I'm like, okay, that makes a lot of sense. But then with enough prodding, I was able to get um, someone to do a custom. So like we have a, an amazing project that hopefully you'll get to see here within the next year when the landscape grows in. But we got these custom made terracotta brick pavers and I think they might be the largest in the world. Wow. Um they're not, you know, they're not massive, but they're they're large by um terracotta brick standards. So they're gonna be really impactful and beautiful. And and that's an example where it really paid to kind of do the research and, and digging um to make that happen. The client is is thrilled and and we're thrilled and we have something totally unique. Yeah. Are you somebody that likes to you know, get samples from these companies or new companies. I find myself wanting to like get these samples, but I'm like, dude, this shit adds up really quick. Yeah. Our uh, sample closet is a little bit crazy right now. Um, I like to get samples and then I like to throw them out when I know I'm never going to use it or it's just not applicable to anything we can kind of do um, in our field. So Yes and no. <laughs> it's a good idea to throw them out or else you end up with like a whole side yard full of them eventually, right? I feel bad for trash collector people because sometimes I'll just dump a bunch of heavy clay tile in there. I'm like, well, sorry. <laughs> if they don't take it, then I'll have to take this somewhere else. But it's always gone. <laughs> so what the hell do you guys do over that? <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, samples, I'm just, you know, because... Every time I see something online, it seems like it's always different in real life. And I'm always like, I wonder like if that looks, you know, as cool as it does like online. Like if I had it in my hand, you know, would the the look, the color, the texture, everything about it, would it be the same in real life as it is? And it's because I've gone to projects where people have like showed what they're using and I'm like, this doesn't, this doesn't look like what I saw online. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think um, that's that's constantly uh, what we struggle with, you know, when, when we're trying to sell a material or or get a client to envision our vision is we have this like little chip, right? And we're trying to get 
them to see the whole, you know, giant wall that it's going to be on. And we know it's going to look good or we think it's going to look good and the client just can't see it. And 3D rendering can only go so far sometimes. But um, yeah, sometimes you, you just don't know. But I think more often than not, um, you have all the materials and they relate together well, and then you'll have something that works um, as long as it makes sense in your palette. It's not just this oddball that's, you know, in there and you're crossing your fingers and hoping it's going to turn out. Um, context is important. I'm going to stop in this area of inspiration because I feel like I could just sit here for way too long. Greg's going to fire up Pinterest any minute. I was going to say, I don't know if you've heard of it, but Milanote is freaking awesome. You ever use Milanote? I've never heard of that. I will immediately look after this. You will thank me later because of what <laughs> Justin asked. It's just pretty much like a large, like endless board, but you screenshot, you just throw, you just dump things in it and you can categorize a different board. It's really easy to use, but for trying to gather inspiration, it's pretty dope. Is it? Um, does it exist kind of on the cloud, online, or is it more of a? Yeah, it's all it's online, and they have a app for iPhone anyway. Milanote. Yeah, M I L A N O T E. Milanote. Cool. Milanote. Yeah, I, I probably said it wrong. Might thank you later, or <laughs> just like oh, another one of these things where I'm going to use it and abandon it. It's pretty legit. Pretty legit. I think okay. Like it. Okay, I'll check it. Thank you. Greg has an app for everything, by the way. Greg is the guy who's got on his computer running like Monday. He's got like I have so many logins just dealing with Greg for every <laughs> single notion and just just ridiculous. So I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised Greg knew that. To be honest with you. So you're well organized then. He's organized to the point that like I don't even know how he keeps up with all of his organizational streams. It's ridiculous. Okay. You need one master organization stream just to <laughs> just to organize all your streams. It's ridiculous. You need an organizer. I have it written on a piece of paper. <laughs> I have a spreadsheet. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That'll stand the test of time. Do you have one you like designing better? I, again, both. I love uh, big and small projects. Some projects that are huge I wish could be a little smaller. And some of the small ones I wish I had, a, you know, just a couple more feet on in some cases. Yeah. But... Um, I, I'm working some of my, my favorite projects that are, are, are finished or kind of getting close to being finished are, are smaller projects. And I think, I think that's because you really do get to spend time and kind of marinate in the details and the layering because there's, you can see everything at once. So a lot of care has to be taken in the detailing and the materials that you choose um, on the smaller projects and obviously how you organize the space. So I, what I love about the small projects is you really do kind of have to pay attention to uh, all of the details um, because you're, you're going to see everything. Um, it has to kind of be executed perfectly. Um, how you organize space becomes very, very important in a small space to make it feel bigger or to separate programs. Um, so they're, I think they're more challenging 
Um, but they're also uh, really rewarding when they come out and the client tells you how much use they get out of it and how much they love it. Um, so I think maybe I'm leaning towards the smaller ones um, just because they're so carefully considered. So my, I do have a question that I'm going to interject here and you, you led up to it perfectly. What is your most rewarding project? Was it small or big? Good question. My most rewarding project. Yeah, favorite, most rewarding, or like. This one we haven't photographed yet, but I think I'm going to go small. I'm going to go tiny okay. on this one. Um, this was a condo um, in a nice part of town that uh, had kind of a, a courtyard separated into three spaces. So there was a smaller space in the back. The middle space was kind of open to two sides of the the condo. And then there was kind of like a little, there was a little kind of tucked away area where it was probably storage. It was like a long, narrow pathway um, to another wall kind of a, as a part of that. And there was a, you know, two and a half foot wide opening to get into the courtyard and you had to go downstairs to get there. So uh, logistically, it took a long time to to build this project because we had subs. You know, they couldn't work at the same time because they had to all enter and exit the same way. Um, we got one tree in there and we had to crane it in. And that was amazing to see hmm. um, and, and get that in there. But the project ended up being so rewarding because... Um, I'm I'm still close with the client and she texts me all the time. She says, you know, thank you so much. I, I use this every day. Um, like there's an outdoor shower that that's kind of a feature in, in that project where we made this like beautiful unfolding kind of origami deck through some screens. And she says she there's a pool at her space, but there's a shower too. And she says she uses it twice a day sometimes and she just can't get enough of of the whole space and and before it was just a a courtyard full of dirt so we really made it very special and um just hearing how much a client loves it and uses it that's the best uh, compliment i think a designer can receive i bet that's awesome one day you'll be able to see that i'll i'll hopefully get pictures of that one soon we're doing some refresh planting and then it'll be good to go awesome so when designing a backyard with a pool what are you expected to know in terms of design i think because we're austin based again that soil the geotech report is gonna be huge um we have to know kind of what we're working with because that's gonna determine right away uh if we're going to be able to hit our client's budget goals or not. Um, if you're going to need 10 piers, we might have to make your pool smaller or pull back on the landscape or do something totally different. So I think number one is the soils um, and, and how to read that geotech report and, and find the information you need in there because they're pretty dense. <laughs> um, and secondly, uh, you know, Ben and Scott, uh, they're very 
good at the plumbing and, and specking all the equipment. Um, you know, they're really known, like what they love to do is make the most efficient systems. And they've kind of passed that down to me. Um, so on my projects, I am, I'm at the point now where I can figure out how to make certain pools and, you know, with different features, how to plumb them and even calculate flow rates and, and things like that. So that's a huge part of it is specking um, how the pool is going to be plumbed and function properly and most efficiently. That's crazy that you, so why would it, yeah, I was just about to say, why would you need to know that? Well, um, why wouldn't you want to know that? <laughs> There's like a separation. I, I feel like for us in our market, like you have like the design in and like the construction in, and there's like a very f solid line in there where like the designers, like to the extent that they need the information to do the design, that's what they know. I can't imagine any designers, Greg, can you think of, I mean, outside of maybe like Rick Chafee or something like that, but that's crazy. Like you can spec like by velocity and all, and all that you, yeah, I mean, we have worksheets. I couldn't do it off the top of my head, but, um, you know, I've gotten to do enough of these diagrams now where I can confidently get all the equipment in there, the sizing, um, and, and figure out the flow rates. And that's, um, that is something I think that might be special or unique to design ecology um, and that um, they really, Scott and Ben both want us to know how it works so that we can be better designers and, and be just masters at our craft. Awesome. Um, and I was going to say, is that because, say you see something on Instagram, Pinterest, or in one of your books, and you're like, let's do this. But if you understand like how hydraulics and plumbing works, then you'll be able to tell if it's if that's realistic or not. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another side of that is, you know, we're not just trying to copy things that we've seen in books. Um, I know we're both uh, Jason, my coworker, and I were both associate designers. Um, we want to do new things. We want to be able to create new features. And, and we can't do that if we don't have an understanding of, of the plumbing and the hydraulics that do that. Um, that go into that. Um, Scott Cummings is a master at that. Like he he creates a lot of these fun details and um, exquisite details that you see on some of our really high end pools. He can figure out how to uh, create new features um, hydraulically and with materials. And I think that he wants us to be at a place where we can do that too. So we're constantly innovating and not just. Um, trying to mimic hard to be original right you get inspiration from everywhere to kind of you know make something unique from you know things that have inspired you especially if you you know you have this walk of life you know journalists living in vegas and this is the style that you gravitate towards you know it's all gonna you know create something different that's unique to, to you right yeah, and you can't really innovate if you don't know the basics. Um, so uh, by no means am I a master at that yet. I am still very green and learning every day, especially on the hydraulic side, but I definitely hope to be there um, so I can I can be a creator. That's, that's what we aim to do. 
So the some of the technical stuff. So you're like form and function at this point, because I was going to say, you know, you are kind of more the form and those guys are, you know, the function. But, you know, outside of that, what else do you need to know? So outside of the, you know, the fun soil testing and, and the engineering part of it, um, we're designers, um, we're trained designers at heart. So we use a variety of visual communications to um, to design the project, um, but to kind of visualize it for our clients um, so that we can give them an, you know, a loose idea of what we're trying to build and trying to do for them. So um, hand rendering is um, not my best um, uh, skill, but I, I use it a lot and it's something I'm constantly trying to improve. So definitely sketching, hand rendering, and we use a lot of um, AutoCAD, AutoCAD into SketchUp, and then sketch up into a, a rendering software. Um, we're kind of in between programs right now, but um, some Lumion, some Lightroom, um, whatever we can do to visually communicate with our clients um, and between ourselves, uh, we we learn so we can so we can be effective. Yeah, that's awesome. And SketchUp is so crazy. I know how to use a lot of online tools, but when I watch Justin on SketchUp, I'm like, dude, what the freak? Like, <laughs> I didn't even know you were capable of doing some of the things that you can do in SketchUp. Are you are you pretty good in that program? Uh, SketchUp is awesome. And I feel like there are so many plugins and things that you can get for it that make your life so much easier if only you knew where to look and how to find them. But um, I, w- I would say I'm I'm average at SketchUp. <laughs> I, I can do all of the basics, but I, I really need to kind of delve a little deeper into some of these plugins and um, find some ways to just make my, my life more efficient. <laughs> so what maybe, maybe I'm just like forgetting, but you know, the design you might be doing in SketchUp, like, is that, what is all in that design and who's it going to? Is it usually like to the homeowner or to the home builder? And is it like all your, the choices for plants and all that other stuff? So we, we don't always do a 3D model, but it helps often um, for people to visualize the space, especially if there's confusing um, elevations um, within the space or how it relates to the house, it can be faster to almost whip something up quickly in 3D, even if it's just amassing to kind of show them how all those pieces will work. Um, but we, we use it for, we use it for small details, you know, like a connection on how like a big boulder is going to meet another boulder, you know, small details like that, or everything from like a full house pool hardscape and some plants. We're not, um, we don't usually get too specific with plants, but we have a little um, library that we pull from of some kind of basic plants just so you can see where we would probably put them in the landscape to kind of soften all the hard elements in there. But 
yeah, builders and clients alike. We we use that all the time. This answer is probably going to have to uh, again will probably be a, a range, but in general, what does it take you to turn around a project like the design? And I know that varies on the size, but like on average, like is it like engage them and you're six months start to finish, or what is the average to get it to the point where you can build it? Yeah, a turnaround time. You're looking for yeah. kind of a schedule. It it definitely varies, and that is a lot client-driven. Um, so, you know, if, if they want a specific material, it's something that we have to get from another country. Lead times, those can start to add up and really um, delay projects. Um, and so can weather. We have had those big freezes, and that's kind of wreaked a lot of devastation um, and pushed back sometimes. But I would say on like a medium-sized project from uh, having initial client meetings to getting on site, developing your concepts, budgeting, and then building a year to two years is I was thinking is is a good window. Yeah, it's a lot, right? I mean, you got to pick. Yeah, I mean, basically, you pick everything for them, right? I mean, is there anything? that you don't like have to put in your selections list for them? Cause it's everything. Do you, do you do the furniture as well? Like outdoor furnishings or is that not included on your plans? I would if they let me really, I certainly would. Yeah. Um, there's, you know, again, I'm kind of like a full picture person. I like to think of the whole story and the whole mood, um, of the project. So, um, if the client wants me to kind of help them and assist them in that endeavor, I will certainly pick out furniture and, and lighting fixtures. And um, I'll take the time to kind of design everything yeah. because uh, nothing is worse than, and you've probably seen it, you know, happen before you finish this project and you've thought through every detail and then um, you, you go away and then, someone buys a bunch of furniture or is gifted furniture that is like a totally different um, like architectural style than the project or just doesn't fit, you know, it's like Disneyland out there and, and you really can't photograph it because that's, that's what your eye sees. It sees the thing that stands out. It doesn't see the, the kind of flow and, and the harmony of all the elements that you've put together. Your eye is going to go straight to the, the oddball. Well, it's like so. I would prefer for that to not happen. <laughs> that's like Lautner, right? I think we've talked about before. Didn't he start designing the furniture into his projects, like permanent furniture? Isn't that? I think so. Um, I have a Lautner book. I haven't cracked it open yet. <laughs> yeah, he did inside and inside. yeah, inside the home and out because he was sick of coming back and people screwing it up, right? I mean, I totally can relate. Uh, yeah, I I wish we had a, enough capacity to where we could even design our furniture and build our furniture, maybe down the line. Um, but uh, yeah, that would be really cool. Right on. You want to move this couch? You got to chip it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's got a pier underneath of it. <laughs> right. So if you were going to build, say I wanted you to build me a backyard and I want it to be totally... Austin themed, I don't know the size, maybe I'm on half an acre, I don't know. But like what material selection would you um, 
put on that. Skullhead for sure. Okay. Yeah, skullheads everywhere. Obviously. Um, and the pricklier the plants, the better. Um, I think kind of the, when I think of Austin vibe, I, I think of like a ranch style project. And that would be, you know, plant palette, lots of agaves, lots of yuccas, lots of native grasses, things that don't need a lot of water and that are going to last through a freeze. Um, our palette's becoming smaller and smaller as the years go by with all of this crazy weather we've been having. But I would definitely play up the um, kind of like the desert ranchy theme with the plants. And I'd probably use a bunch of locally sourced materials for hardscape, looters, limestone, and buff. That's going to be like my go-to ranch color. It's just a neutral, creamy limestone, and it holds up really well outside and around pools. And you can get it in any size you want. So big features, things that you can carve out and take away in thin veneer. You can get it in, in anything. What was that? You said uh, buff or buff. is that what you said? Yeah. Buff? Buff. What, what is that the color you were just describing? I've never heard of that before. It's the condition you see. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> it's it, uh, this? Yeah. <laughs> it's So we have Looter's Limestone. Anybody in the central Texas area will be familiar with this product. It's on everything. And, and I know we often talk about how sick we are of using it, but we use it for a reason. It's quarried outside of, of Austin and it comes in a buff creamy color. Um, and it also comes in a gray charcoal color and even a blue color. Um, but within that, there's a lot of variation as well. And dig it. What would the, uh, pool tile pattern color be i knew that was going to be your next question i just couldn't think of you were stalling huh you're like damn you know what i would love to do which i think would be very austin and very ranchy and haven't gotten to do yet is like a a brown sort of tile probably something artisanal um and thicker chunkier like maybe a clay tile with a tan to chocolate milk chocolate glaze on it i think that would look spectacular with like a medium gray finish pool or a dark pool um you just don't see browns very much anymore and i think that i like that. i think they're gonna have a resurgence it will be done <laughs> i just got done painting everything white gray and black in my house so i'm hoping it's a while well, <laughs> you missed the vivid magenta color of the year memo is that right is that the thing <laughs> yeah pink vivid magenta Pink's everywhere should have gone pink barbie man or, no it's it's viva i think it's a viva magenta have you seen yeah, this the barbie pink. this is totally off topic but have you seen the um the black like vanta black that they made it was like the blackest black that absorbs all the light have you ever seen that i have not seen it but i've read and heard about it Okay. Right. It just kind of is a void almost like yes. a black hole. It's so black that it takes three dimension out. Yeah, that's that's wild. Okay. I don't know if I'd want to swim in something like that. I'd feel like I was in a black hole. No, they made a pink. They made a pink version now. 
but it flattens everything. I don't know. I, I might have just uh, skimmed the article, but apparently they came up with, so they, d- they ended up doing a white, which I don't know if it has the same properties or whatever, but they call it, it's a pink. It's like the world's pinkest pink. Okay. I don't know. I tell you I what, would love to see it Greg, if you would send it. Greg, you asked the next question. I'm going to find it right now and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to tell you. Well, while you do that, let me just put in this uh, shameless plug because since I've been working at Design Ecology, I've been telling Ben and Scott that all I really want to do is do an all mosaic tile pool with like a candy pink Ooh. interior and to make like a you know just a super pop tastic um sculptural pink pool and nobody's taken me up on it and i thought i think they thought i was crazy for the first few years and were you know questioning my taste level but then this year came around and pink was everywhere and even those downtime slides they have a beautiful candy pink one and yeah i'm sure i keep telling them I was like, I told you I was on to something with this. So <laughs> if anybody out there wants one, please call Design Ecology and I'm your girl. I'll get it done. We had a we had Rick Chafee on and he did a purple pool. Wow. Yeah. In That's Arizona. Very cool. Right, Greg? Wasn't it purple? The Target CEO wasn't it uh the only purple pool? Oh yeah. But it was that was a all all glass uh tile. No, it was pebble because he had to Oh, the, yeah, they it was died like the, the one pebble. And only. Yeah, it was the one and only purple pool. It's uh, it's pretty rad. How yeah, long ago did they do it? I'd love to see that. Ten years or fifteen years. You, if you go to their site, you know Ben and Rick are obviously friends, so I think we can cross promote here. But if you go to his site, he's got pictures of it up on. It's pretty rad. I mean, it's a pretty dark purple, but you could tell it's purple. Okay, cool. Yeah, it's I mean, purple. Pretty rad. Yeah, okay. I will check it out. So I like the. Uh, the Austin pool backyard that you designed for me. And I, I dig the the brown tile. It reminds me of kind of like mission style mixed in with like old kind of like Mexican restaurant or something like that. I could see some maybe like flat yellows back there with the brown and gravel and all that. Yeah, absolutely. All the cactuses. I, I dig it. This yeah. happened. Maybe some goats. Were you going to put some I was going to say, just don't get any goats, please. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Did you find it, Justin? Uh, yeah, but I don't want to tell you what it says. It's, it's actually, um, yeah, it's called, it's the world's pinkest pink. And when you go onto the site, you have to sign in and say you are not Anish Kapoor, who was the creator of Vanta Black. So it's pinkest pink. Weird. It's not worth dipping too much into, but uh, it's a... Yeah, I don't know. I'm like scared uh, to look at it. It's got a it's shocked. got a picture. It's got a picture of it. Uh, I don't know. You need to check it out. It is the pinkest pink. I mean, this is the pinkest pink I've ever seen in my life. So, is it like a? Is it hot pink or is it oh, like Pepto pink? No, it's like hot Barbie pink. I mean, they describe it as the world's pinkest pink. This is exactly how I would imagine the world's pinkest pink. So, it's pretty rad. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, guys. I want that like on the bottom of my snowboard, like go up and people are just like, oh, my God. <laughs> like safe, so safety pink. pink. You know, they have yes. the, it's the t-shirt colors. It's definitely pretty rad. Yeah. Can we do that, Justin? We do the safety yellow and safety orange. Can we do the safety <laughs> pink? Sure. That's a thing, right? It, God, it, that is the it is a thing. damn shirt. So it's called, yeah, it's their safety pink in Heliconia. I was a graphic designer at a, oh, this is hilarious. 
<laughs> I don't know if this will make it the cut, um, <laughs> but one of my odd jobs when I was living in Chicago in between uh, school and grad school is um, I worked as a graphic designer for a professional wrestling t-shirt company. Hello. So designing uh, t-shirts and and. Um, we had all these wrestlers who would come in all the time and they had stores up on the site. It's called Professional Wrestling Tees, but uh, we did a lot of pink. <laughs> really? Yep. I could see that. Libre. I know. What was it like the 90s, like WrestleMania? That was like super in like black, white, pink. Black, white, pink. Yeah, it's still a thing. And there are still so many wrestling fans It's that I really had no clue. But that was it's a, a stupid business. It's, a fun it's world to be a part of for a while. It really opened up my eyes. <laughs> and according to Joe Rogan, it seems like they all like retire and start cannabis companies or something in the cannabis world. He's had like Hulk Hogan on, on um, and he's had a lot of other like wrestlers like that. Like, yeah, now I started a, you know, a company where we sell marijuana and this and that. I'm like, go figure. Yeah, totally. Hope you guys do that. <laughs> do you have any plants or materials you most enjoy working with? Yeah, um, this is going to kind of mirror your Austin designed pool um, and landscape. I I really love, uh, you know, agaves, native grasses, and, and cacti. The few that we can uh, that grow and do well here in Austin, I really like to use them. Um, you know, anything very architectural like that, I think is just, you know, can make a lot of visual impact um, with not a lot of them and they light up well at night. So plant palette, I'm definitely, you know, it's that Vegas in me too. I, I, I will like the desert kind of plants um, the most, I think. Um, but it's project specific. I won't put it on a project just to do it. So but those are the, the plants I really love working with. And then for materials, I think anything artisanal, handcrafted feeling, you know, that has like a texture to it. Um, again, working with a lot of, of clay tiles or uh, terracotta materials, um, anything that's kind of that doesn't look too highly manufactured. I kind of like those imperfect materials. I think they can do a lot and, and make the project look really unique. I'm sure that's got to be difficult in making a space look like it was always there. You know, it's like if you just walked out in the open of Sedona or somewhere in Texas or Vegas, even, you know, that the stuff you see has always been there, but to create a backyard that's like visually pleasing but it doesn't look overdone it's like just right and you know you could use it comfortably there's a, there's a real skill to that yeah definitely um i want to also say we will make it better than if it was just there from the beginning you know we want it to be the upgraded version of course but um yeah you know no one wants to put something that's unless you're in vegas and you want to put like a spaceship in your backyard that's typically not what people are going for um so we try to make everything feel like it's in harmony is there a detail or something that repeats in every design ecology projects i don't think there's one element that's repeatable in any of our projects um 
But I would say attention to detail is something that's in every single one of our projects. Um, that's really what people hire us for. I mean, we think of we think of the whole project. We think of those special transition joints. We really take a lot of time and care into making sure those are um, executed beautifully and seamlessly so that, you know, you really, the goal is to not see them, right? Um, those little details like that. So, right. yeah, attention to detail. Love it. Yeah, kind of side note, I remember sharing like a photo of a pool we used to take care of many, many years ago on our Instagram. And I remember somebody commenting on it and they call, and it was an older pool. It had to have been like, I don't know, maybe 15, 20 years old. And somebody called out the designer on it. And I just thought, um, and it was like a compliment to the designer. And even back then, I thought that that was so cool that somebody had like just such a unique style in what they did that they could just see it and be like, oh yeah, that's a, you know, so-and-so design pool. And uh, I don't know, always stuck with me. I think, you know, with enough time, maybe, you know, I could be known for, for something like that. I love to do raised edge pools and uh, really special tiles and the kind of signature of mine is becoming like these huge firewalls. Um, we have a couple of them on a few projects. So that hopefully in the future, right on. someone can say that's a, that's a Brittany Duncan design ecology landscape. That's cool. You know, I, I don't know why I didn't add this question in there, but you know, um, does uh, Ben and Scott, do they ask you guys to do a little bit more sort of, you know, self-promoting, self-branding kind of of what you do within the business, say on Instagram or LinkedIn, Pinterest? Like, how do you view that side of things? They they certainly don't ask us to do any independent self-promotion, um, but they, you know, Scott is typically the person who meets with the clients first and does like an initial meeting. And he's a pretty good judge of, you know, right away. Like, is this person, do they have a vibe that's going to be like more Britney's style or more Jason's style um, or personality? And and he kind of matches us up that way. You know, like if he had a, someone who come in and say, I want a pink bull bang, that would be my project. Um, but um so how pissed would you be if it wasn't <laughs> it went to the other guy he would never <laughs> he would never like this is a joke right <laughs> no because you're going to be working on greg's austin pool so screw that guy i want the pink pool like i can i can work on i work on many <laughs> projects at once how many projects do you work on at once usually or maybe right now i was trying to count in my head when you were asking that um I would say anywhere from 10 to 20, and that's, they're all in various stages. So some are in the queue, some are on punch lists, you know, four of them are in CDs and the rest are in conceptual. Um, it really varies, but we're, we're, we're often working on at least 10 at once. It's awesome. It is a lot, but it's, it's great because, you know, if you're well organized and, and you can kind of keep a good pace, um, one day you come in and 
you you just can't do a shop drawing. It, you know, you, you're just not in it, the mindset, but you can draw because you have a project that you need to kind of conceptually design on. So, you know, you're able to kind of move and and create your day around how you're feeling creatively. And, and that's a huge plus to having so many projects at once. Do you have a detail that you've designed that you haven't built yet or something that isn't out yet? Yeah, um, I did a really fun um, unfolding deck at a, at a project that had a very narrow space. And the, the client wanted, um, I mean, it must have been like a five foot wide um, corridor by like 20 feet. And the client wanted an outdoor shower. They also had a bunch of art that they wanted to display in the space. So I had this idea for, um, you know, kind of staggered screens so that if you were at the front looking at down the passageway, you wouldn't see the person showering. So they were kind of offset screens. Um, and then in front of that planting and then a space for artwork. Um, but you kind of wound your way through it um, on this very narrow deck. And because it was such a tight space, and it was such a small deck I had a lot of fun playing with it I, I I made it like an origami kind of an idea where like all of the boards were oriented in one way and when it turned a corner they it almost like folded in on itself and the corner was cut at a 45 and then it kind of unfolded almost like a fortune cookie back to the end and it turned out awesome um the the carpenter did an amazing job on that and it just it you know it's special when you're on it and that small detail was not something i had ever seen but the artist or sorry the client um she worked in asia like six months out of the year and so she was really inspired um, by these kind of asian themes um and so that was a fun little piece that we put in there and and it turned out really beautiful. That sounds rad. I can't wait to see that. Yeah. That sounds very cool. Thank you so much, Brittany. Appreciate your time. Uh, where can people find you online? Yeah, so designecology.com. That's our website. And um, you can also find us on Instagram. That is where our most recent projects are um, kind of constantly being updated Um I think it's just Instagram.com slash design ecology. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. You can find everything discussed in this episode and more in our show notes below or poolchasers2.0.com. This episode was produced by the amazing Kyle Ald. I'm Greg Viafania, and you've been listening to the Pool Chasers podcast.